Story number one, the college football playoff committee has released its first rankings for this season. Again, I'm going to tell you why they're complete nonsense. Number two, Trey Young and many other stars are furious at the new NBA rule regulating how players can draw fouls. And I'm going to tell you why they're ridiculous as well. And story number three, a more local one, Oklahoma State's ban from the postseason has been upheld. And I'm going to tell you why that one is not ridiculous. Stick around. This is the gray area. Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. Coming to you from the Ocali Media Group at Oklahoma State University. My name is Grayson Singleton, and we've got a big show today. One thing that was pretty interesting about my week is I normally record this podcast uh, every Monday. But my class schedule got changed around, had a project due, so I wasn't able to get in here until Wednesday morning, actually. And it served me better, because now I've got two additional stories that I get to talk about, including one that broke an hour before I got here. But let's start with this. The World Series is over, the Astros have lost, and now we can shut up about them cheating. At least I will. One of the things when it comes to cheaters is that you want to, number one, you want to see them suffer. They did that. We got that. Check. They were ridiculed all throughout last season, and then they were ridiculed all of this season once the fans got back into all the baseball stadiums. There were inflatable trash cans being brought into arenas, into ballparks. There were actual trash cans being brought into ballparks. There were chants being uttered that I cannot repeat on this podcast. And there are a myriad of other things that the Houston Astros had to deal with this season. So, they suffered, they were ridiculed, that's over and done with. Number two, when it comes to cheaters. We want to see cheaters get back to the level they were at before they were cheating. Because we want to see, were you actually good? Now, nobody with a baseball acumen would say that the Astros were not a good team in 2017. We all know that. The Astros had perennial all-stars across their infield, you know, Bregman, Altuve, Correa, and then even Gurriel is a good player. And George Springer was still in their outfield, and they had multiple guys on the pitching staff that were absolutely fantastic. Dallas Keuchel, to name one of them, and Charlie Morton. But you want to see if they can get back. And on their way to the World Series, we all know about the sign stealing and the home run by Altuve off of Roldis Chapman, which for a guy that throws 103 miles an hour, hitting him becomes a lot more easy if you know what kind of pitch and where the pitch is going to be thrown. Like, that's just that's just common knowledge. So the Astros got back. You know, they went deep into the playoffs last year. They lost in the divisional round in 2020. And then they got back to the World Series this year. And then the third thing you want to see from cheaters is you want to see them lose. The Astros got back to the World Series. And even though they only lost 4-2, to two, they got blitzed by the Atlanta Braves. Absolutely annihilated. It was... Watching the World Series might have been the most fun time I've ever had watching baseball, watching the Atlanta Braves play. It was, it was phenomenal. And in an age where starting pitchers don't really go deep into games in postseason, particularly in the World Series, Max Freed put on a show on Tuesday night. Six innings, six strikeouts, three hits, no walks, only allowed three singles. Three singles, and then Michael Brantley reached on an error, which 
on that error. I thought Max Fried was going to be out of the game when Michael Brantley stepped on his ankle on that play. But that guy put on a show. The Braves' bullpen put on an absolute clinic of bullpen pitching over the course of this World Series. Jorge Soler, who was very predictably named the World Series MVP, put on a show. And it was good to see old Freddie Freeman finally win his ring. And I I was unaware, because they said this on the broadcast at the end of the game, I was unaware that Freddie Freeman had been in the league for 12 years. I mean, geez, time flies. Now I've got Now I really got to look at how long it's been since Mike Trout and Bryce Harper got in the league. Because now I'm starting to feel old, and I'm only 20. I know Freddie Freeman had been in the league since I was eight years old. He didn't seem that. He didn't seem that old. But there's a lot of happiness to go around with the Atlanta Braves winning the World Series. You're obviously happy for Freddie Freeman. You're happy for Brian Snicker, who has been in the Atlanta Braves organization for 45 years. You're happy for good old Ron Washington, who managed the Texas Rangers to two World Series appearances and then finally got his World Series as a third-base coach for the Braves. And in a year where there was a lot of tumultuous situations that were going around Atlanta, you had the Marcelo Zuna problem at the beginning of the year. You lost Ronald Acuna Jr. to a torn ACL. Uh, Mike Soroka didn't pitch all of this season, who's he's going to be one of the great up-and-coming pitchers in the National League and probably in all of Major League Baseball. Mike Soroka is the real deal. And then you had the whole thing with the Braves chop, with the Tomahawk chop and all of that, which um, I'm, I'll just go ahead and say it here. You probably need to get rid of that. It's not as clear-cut as, you know, the Washington football team changing their name, but you probably, you probably want to get rid of that. Um, and then you had the whole, you know, political divide that came with that. I'm not going to touch on that. And through all of that, we have to remember the Atlanta Braves were under 500 until August 6th. That is pretty much three-fourths of the way through the season, the Atlanta Braves had a losing record. And they finished with 88 wins, won their division, got through the Dodgers. They were either going to have to get through the Dodgers or the Giants, two, the top two teams in all of baseball. They got through the Dodgers and then got to a World Series. It was, it was incredible. It was incredible what Atlanta was able to string together over the course of the last two-plus months. It was good to see. It's good to see a team that, even though I don't really, this doesn't really emotionally affect me, but it is good to see a team that's not, you know, one of the big market teams win a World Series. It's fun. You know, we're just coming off of a year where the Milwaukee Bucks won the NBA Finals. It's fun. You know, you don't want to see, you know, the L.A.'s of the world, the New York's of the world, the San Francisco's, you know, goes on and on and on. You don't want to see them win every single year. I don't particularly care because it's baseball. Baseball is so hot and cold, and the physics of baseball are so, are so weird that I really don't even think it matters. But good for them. But for the Houston Astros, you know, they've completed the trifecta of what we want to see with cheaters. They suffered. They were maligned for two years because the fans weren't there in 2020. They got back to where they were. They got back to the World Series. And then they got shellacked in the World Series. So I'm over and done with this, with the Astros cheating. 
Now, for, for, one, for one more time, I will reiterate that I think the Houston Astros should have the 2017 World Series title stripped from them. This isn't like some minor cheating thing. This was a systemic organizational problem that is sign-stealing taken to the extreme. This is sign stealing in a way that is not normal. This is this this whole argument that everybody steals signs. Yeah, they try to steal signs. They use their eyes, not cameras and technology. That's two very different things. So because of that, I think the Astros should have 2017, that world championship, they should have that taken. And they will forever be known with that title as the Houston Asterix. But in terms of their penalty, in terms of the social repercussions, that is all over and done with. We, we, we can stop. We can stop with that. It's, it's come full circle. Now, starting in 2022, when they probably will not have Carlos Correa, who probably will not re-sign with them as a free agent, probably because he wants more money than the Astros can really give him. This, it, is now, it is now time for them to make up for it. And the Houston Astros are going to be back. They're going to be back. They're a great team. They're managed by... A fantastic manager, one of the best the games the game has ever seen. They'll they'll be back, but we can stop with the with the cheating. We can stop with the garbage cans, all of that. That's over and done with. Got to let that die. All right, let's get to story number one. The college football playoff committee released its first rankings for the 2021 season, and they go like this: the top four. Georgia, predictable. Best team in the country by far. Number two, Alabama. Number three, Michigan State coming off a fantastic win over Michigan. And probably have the Heisman frontrunner and Kenneth Walker. Number four, Oregon. And then other highlights of it go five, Ohio State, six, Cincinnati, the unbeaten. Michigan at seven, Oklahoma at eight. Wake Forest and Notre Dame round out the top ten with Oklahoma State just missing at 11. This might be in the eight years, I think it's been, that the college football playoff has done this. This might be the worst initial rankings I have seen. This might just be the worst ranking, period. This is awful. What the college football playoff committee did. And there is so much implicit bias in these rankings. I mean, it is it is crazy, and let's let's start let's, we'll start with the back end of this. Um, number nine is Wake Forest. Wake Forest is unbeaten in the ACC. Now, am I saying Wake Forest is a top five is a top four team? No, no, but they are unbeaten in a Power Five conference. If this were Clemson, if this was Florida State, you think they'd be nine? Just a little thought there. Oklahoma at 8, 9-0 in a Power 5 conference. I get that they're not the same OU teams that have been in the past. I get that. But at 8, again, you're undefeated in a Power 5 conference, and you have run the conference for the better part of the last decade. Michigan at 7. I've got a big problem with this one. I know they were unbeaten up until last week, and then they lost to Michigan State. But why can't you drop them behind Oklahoma again? Why can't you possibly drop them behind Wake Forest? Cincinnati at six. And then Ohio State at five. 
and Oregon at four. This is where I have the big problem because the top three, Georgia, Alabama, Michigan State, I don't have a problem being with them being in the top four because I think they are all three top four teams in the country. I just don't believe Alabama should be two. I believe Alabama should be four. I believe Michigan State could be as high as two. Maybe you switch Michigan State and Alabama. And I still think Cincinnati has earned the right to be the fourth team. Where this gets really tricky for me, or actually really comical, I'll say, is that Ohio State is five. And the reason being here, this is where the implicit bias that I mentioned comes into play. If you think the college football playoff committee is in love with Alabama, assess the love affair that it has with Ohio State. The committee will try and will go to great lengths to make sure Ohio State hangs around in the college football playoff hunt. Ohio State has not looked very dominant this year. They're they're not the same. Neither is Alabama. Alabama's not as dominant. Alabama's still like a top four team in the country. And the reason why this Ohio State affinity shakes up this entire thing is because the committee could not justify Ohio State being that high if Oregon wasn't. Because Oregon beat Ohio State. So if they want to keep Ohio State at five, to cover yourself, you have to put Oregon at four. And nobody who watches college football can think of any justification for why Oregon is the fourth best team in the United States of America. Really and truly, as they play now into into November, Ohio State is better than Oregon. I can make a legitimate case that Cincinnati is better than Oregon. I can make a case that Michigan is better than Oregon. The key there is that Michigan and Oregon and Ohio State all have the same amount of losses, one. And of those three, only one of them lost to an unranked team. That would be Oregon when they lost to Stanford. Everybody else has lost to a ranked team. Ohio State, their one loss came to Oregon, who was ranked, I believe, in the top 12 at that point. Michigan lost last week to an eighth-ranked Michigan State before they jumped to three. And Cincinnati, sitting there in the middle at six, oh, by the way, they haven't lost. Now, I forgot who Oh, Cincinnati played last week. It was, it was Tulane. Cincinnati played Tulane last weekend. And what didn't do Cincinnati any favors is that they did struggle with Tulane. However, this is football. There is, there, you're going to struggle with somebody because there's, it's just impossible to bring your A++ game every single week, which is the burden that a group of five school like Cincinnati is just going to have to shoulder if they want to make any hay in terms of getting in the CFP. But everybody else has been completely annihilated by Cincinnati. Not to mention that Cincinnati last year, I can't remember who they played, but they won a New Year's Six Bowl game. Does this not count for anything? This is not unbeaten UCF in 2017, I want to say, somewhere around that range, where they had those two years that were unbeaten, then they went to bowl games and got absolutely curb stomped that one time by LSU, which was absolutely hilarious. 
which I believe was a couple weeks after the UCF student body claimed them the national champions, and they just went and got mollywopped by LSU. This isn't that. This Cincinnati team is for real. And this is why Cincinnati is going to the Big 12 in a couple of seasons, so this nonsense doesn't keep happening. Because this is a for real team. Luke Fickle has done an exceedingly amazing job with this Cincinnati Bearcat program. Nobody here at Oklahoma at Oklahoma State is going to like this for me. But I think Oklahoma is, is a big loser here. Like I said earlier, I know they're not as good as they were with Kyler Murray. They're not ex- as explosive as they were with Baker Mayfield and Hollywood Brown, that team. But the change from, K- from Spencer Rattler to Caleb Williams has done OU a world of good. Now, since the, in that time period, they have annihilated Baylor. They came back from a 20-plus point deficit to beat Texas, which, was, which marked the, the, the change from Rattler to Williams. And then they struggled with Kansas. Now, I think struggling with Kansas is what maybe did Oklahoma in with this. But as an undefeated Big 12 team, I don't think they should be behind Michigan. And I really just and I just really and truly don't think that Ohio State and Oregon should be up of should be up this high at four and five or five and four, respectively. But because of the love affair with Ohio State and the subsequent lack of justification for why they should be ahead of Oregon, you have to put Oregon up there, which in return gave the short end of a stick to teams like Cincinnati and Oklahoma, in my opinion. Cincinnati, an unbeaten team. Yes, they're a group of five school, but they're really good. And Oklahoma is a Big 12 unbeaten Power 5 team that is still in the driver's seat for yet another Big 12 championship. I do think Oklahoma State, in the end, will have something to say about that and possibly Baylor when those two match up. Here's the thing. I'm not going to get too... I'm not too worried about this, for per se. I'm not too worried about it because eventually a lot of these teams will knock each other out of contention. Michigan still has to play Ohio State. Michigan State still has to play Ohio State. And, and what a matchup that will be. Oklahoma still has to play Oklahoma State. Baylor at 12 still has to play Oklahoma. So those are two games right there that will give Oklahoma major, major problems. Unless Oklahoma State just reverts back to its ultra, ultra conservative ways and then just gives the game away because of archaic coaching, which is which, which is, is all too possible. By the way, great, great, great win over the weekend by Oklahoma State, just completely annihilating the Jayhawks. And then Baylor will cause problems for Oklahoma. So there's a lot of internal shakeup that could happen. The Big Ten could could just knock all three of its teams out of contention and make way for Cincinnati. Cincinnati, to me, even though they can win out, they're in the unlucky position that they do not control their own destiny because the teams that they have left on their schedule, Houston and SMU of note, are ranked in both the coaches' polls and the AP polls. They are not ranked in the CFP poll. And by the way, let's go down to the bottom of this list that the college football playoff put out there and how absolutely just awful this is as we get to the backside. Iowa at 22. Ugh. Um, Pittsburgh, okay, they beat they beat Miami. Actually, did they lose to Miami? 
Pittsburgh had trouble with Miami over the weekend at 25. Uh, U- UTSA, University of Texas San Antonio. Um, that's a that's an undefeated team that should be in there. Kentucky just lost again. They're at 18. Wisconsin at 21. I have never wanted to pull my hair out more watching a football game than when I watched the Wisconsin Badgers play football. And this dude, Graham Mertz. I'm not going to say Graham Mertz sucks, but he's, he's not good. The Wisconsin defense is for real, and that's it. They've got a running back that's, our, that's, that's all right, but they're not a top 25 team in the country. Now, Texas A&M's win over Alabama definitely gave them a stimulus package, but I think they might be a bit high at 14. Basically, all in all, what we see throughout the entire top 25 in this initial CFP ranking is a lot of implicit bias and a lot of love for Power 5 teams. Because they force-fed Wisconsin into this. They force-fed Minnesota into this. They force-fed Iowa into this. And Minnesota, Wisconsin, and Iowa make up 20 through 22. And what it does when you do that is that it hurts the it hurts the, the resumes of a team like Cincinnati, who has beaten teams like SMU and Houston. SMU, for certain, should be in the top 25. And, and the reason why this does is because we look at ranked wins. Because it's, it's a very quantitative way to make arguments in a sport that is very much not quantitative. As a matter of fact, college football, to, to me, is the most subjectively ranked American sport in all, in all of the country. It is extremely subjective. And it is based on a lot of meaningless numbers that we could definitely do without. I, I mean, I do love the rise of analytics because it keeps more people employed. And the more people employed, the better the economy is and the better just we are as a society. So I like that we have analytics and we have, have to have people that can run that kind of stuff. But I think sometimes it takes away from just common sense. So a very weird ranking. To, to start the college football playoff season. I think in the end, they'll probably get it more right. And one last thing. Do we think the college football playoff committee is avoiding, trying to avoid at all costs, putting Oklahoma in again? Because every time Oklahoma is the four seed in the CFP, they end up getting ran by somebody. In 2019, it was LSU when I believe Joe Burrow and them dropped 75 on them. And Oklahoma just couldn't keep up. Oklahoma, I think Oklahoma scored like 36 points that game or something like that. And that's a pretty good output for a football team, except they gave up almost pretty much double that. And then they've gotten ran by Alabama before. And if they get in at number four, they would likely play number one Georgia. And I guarantee you they would get curb stomped by the Bulldogs as well. I wonder if the committee is just is trying to figure out every possible way to make sure Oklahoma has no business in the college football playoff so that doesn't happen again. Maybe it is, because that 1-4 matchup is usually a pretty god-awful matchup. 
But there's your original CFP. If you forgot, one is Georgia and then Alabama, Michigan State, and Oregon to round, round out the top four. Ohio State and Cincinnati just narrowly miss. And then Michigan, Oklahoma, Wake Forest, and Notre Dame round out the top ten of the first college football playoff rankings of this season. Let's switch gears to basketball, and let's go to the pro game for a little bit. Basketball over the few of the over the last few years has been pretty hard to watch, depending on which teams you follow closely. And this whole advent of rule manipulation and unnatural basketball definitely made the game in some respects a clown show and an acting job and commentators from Jeff Van Gundy and Mark Jackson to people like Stephen A. Smith and opinionators like him Mike Greenberg have lamented that to the nth degree so the NBA finally changed its rules they made sure that unnatural shooting motions and new and just all of the ways that players manipulate rules to try to get foul calls are taken out of the game and this is going to result in definitely some form of adjustment from players who whose output was largely contingent upon them being able to manipulate the rules and manipulate referees into giving them bogus calls that was based on nothing more than them just throwing their bodies around and not even really playing basketball. And as a former basketball player, that really, really angers me. I wish I would have... I Okay, I wish, wish is a wrong word, but I wonder how much more my offensive output would have been as a career 71% free throw shooter that I was in high school. I wonder how much more my output would have been if I had the presence of mind to manipulate the rules the way some of these players did. And we'll start na- and I'll start name dropping in a minute. But the <laughs> the first player to really publicly express disappointment with this rule was the Atlanta Hawks Trey Young. Now Trey Young is a smaller guy. So sometimes you kind of feel for him, you know, you know, I need to get a couple more calls. Number one, I believe that's bogus. But, you know, he gets hit. He gets hit a lot. He doesn't have the biggest frame. He's, he's a little frail. But last week, Trey Young had felt like he was not getting enough calls. And he said this, quote, there's a lot of missed calls. It's basketball. It's just it feels like they're learning. And they're just, I don't know, it's frustrating. Close quote. Number one, Trey Young, learn how to speak in complete sentences, please. Because that was not me stuttering. That was me reading directly from my computer screen what Trey Young said. (laughs) Maybe I should have just played the quote. That would have been a little bit easier to follow. But Yahoo Sports notes that Trey Young is averaging 24.2 points per game over his first five games which was barely below his season average of 25.3 points per game from from 2020 to 2021. The kicker is that Trey Young's production is not coming from the same way. His free throw attempts 
pretty much have been cut in half. He averaged 8.7 free throw attempts last year. And through five games, through the first five games of the Atlanta Hawks season, he's averaging 4.2. The other player that is really affected by this is Brooklyn's James Harden. After averaging 24.6 points per game last season between Houston and Brooklyn, he's averaging 16.6. And his free throw attempts have dropped to 2.8 per contest, which we know James Harden would consistently get at minimum eight, but a lot of times would be in the 12 to 15 range in terms of free throws. And this was why James Harden was one of, if not my least favorite player in the NBA. Because his rule manipulation was so egregious and so just so flagrant. And really and truly, he should have been ashamed of himself for that. That he he was just so just. There was just no way to happily watch James Harden play because you knew in one way or another, he was going to fling his arm around or fling his head somewhere or kick his leg out and act like he's falling. And he would get a foul call. Now, I will say this. The NBA's darling, Steph Curry, did do a lot of this as well. However, he adjusted the way he did it to where it was still within the realm of playing basketball. He did this a lot when it came to shot fakes and getting players up in the air and then diving into them. Now, do I believe diving into somebody as a shooter is a natural basketball motion? No, particularly if you're diving into them on when they're flying by you on the side. That is not a natural motion. However, that is a little more of a basketball play because you implored the shot fake. What James Harden, what Trey Young do was not basketball. And now with the NBA trying to rid, rid itself of that, and there's going to be growing pains with this too, their production is going down. And this is sort of the same realm what I talked about over the summer when the NBA, the Major League Baseball had their crackdown on sticky stuff. The, you know, the foreign substances that pitchers use to increase their spin weight and affect the physics of the game of baseball. Is that, you know, you saw Tyler Glass now tears UCL and he blamed the crackdown on sticky stuff. Then you had so many other pitchers' performances dipped because they were not able to cheat. Now, am I saying basketball players are cheating in that same realm, no. But I, but they are cheating the game, in my opinion. But there's going to be an adjustment. We're going to see who really is that great. Was James Harden really that good, or was he just a great, great at playing head games with the rules and with the officials? I think Trey Young will be able to figure this out. I think he will. But now, is Trey Young's health in more danger because players will know that we can be more physical on a guard with a miniature stature like that of Young. That's all that's possible. That's 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 very possible that that will happen. But being opposed to change because oh and this, and this was the this was the other point I was going to get at which Trey Young said. Trey Young said in that quote it said it feels like they're learning. Yeah, they are. And you're not a victim here because you caused this. Guys like Trey Young and James Harden should not be mad 
at the referees learning a new style of officiating because they were the ones that caused it because they were making the game virtually unwatchable because of those antics. And and if James Harden and if Trey Young are going to continue with their production, they're going to adjust. You know, and they're not the only ones, but they're but they're the kingpins of all of this. Um and believe it or not, there are more people that are in favor of this. Number one, that there had to be because to change rules like that, you have to get a certain vote from the NBA Board of Governors. But even Warriors coach Steve Kerr said, quote, the game has a more authentic feel, close quote. Well, duh, because you have to actually go back and play basketball. So Trey Young and James Harden, all of them being mad that they can't cheat the game by making Bush League plays to draw fouls. You know, sometimes people get so accustomed to doing things the wrong way that when they see the right way, you know, (laughs) there's so much pushback because you're just so used to doing it the wrong way. Uh, So, and let's not, and this is also not something Trey Young grew up doing either because I watched Trey Young when he was at Oklahoma. I've seen Trey Young's high schools at Norman North High School. I watched him at college at, at OU. This wasn't something he was doing all the time. He did this when he got into the NBA. This is something Trey Young has developed over the first three plus years of his NBA career. He'll be he 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 can unlearn this, and if he can't, then he's just then he's not a great player in the NBA. And again, the Steph Curry is an example of this. Steph Curry, this isn't something he he slowly but surely took out of his game. And sure enough, he led the league in scoring last year, and at the time that I'm recording this, he's leading the NBA in scoring right now. He's going to have to learn how to do this. Luka Doncic in Dallas will really have to adjust to this. Because Luka Doncic, as great of a player he is, he is soft. He sometimes comes across as soft. So he's going to have to learn how to adjust about this because he's not as bad as Trey Young and James Harden were. Oh, but his hands aren't clean here either. So many guys are going to have to adjust to this, and we'll have to see. And the great ones always adjust. The great ones adjust. The great defensive backs in the game, we know you can't play as physical as you used to be able to, but the great ones, they figured out a way to get to work through it. And the ones that aren't great have slowly but surely showed it. The great ones will adjust to this. But... I'll end this segment with this quote, and this is from the Wizards' Kyle Kuzma. Quote, the new rules changes to the sport are the best thing the league has done in recent history. Watching the game is much different. Close quote. The game flows better. It ends quicker. And I will say it's a better teachable game when you take that sort of nonsense out of it. So let's go back to the college world and the NCAA. And am I actually going to say something good about the NCAA today? Eh, quite possibly. We'll see. 
that, that, that will be left to your interpretation. But the reason why we're talking about the NCAA today is because the Oklahoma State men's basketball team had its appeal rejected of a postseason ban that was that was placed on them last summer. They had that appeal rejected about an hour before I came on to record this. And everybody, of course, at Oklahoma State is mad. Of course, I've read through a bunch of comment section of people who don't know what they're talking about and can only express their feelings in two letters, BS. <laughs> so let's go back through, let's go back to exactly what happened here, why Oklahoma State was banned in the first place, and should their appeal have been upheld. And this coming from a report by Jeff Borzello from ESPN. And basically... This penalty is stemming from a 2017 FBI investigation that was done into widespread college basketball corruption. There were a lot of schools who were implicated in this investigation. Oklahoma State was one of them. Kansas is one of them. We are still waiting to see what will happen to Kansas. Auburn was in this. USC was in this. South Carolina was in this. Arizona, under Sean Miller, most notably, was in this as well. What, in the case of Oklahoma State, Oklahoma State was given a level one violation, which was involving former associate head coach Lamont Evans, who accepted between $18,150 and $22,000 in bribes to steal players, steer, excuse me, to steer players from Oklahoma State and South Carolina, where he was also an assistant coach at a time, to certain agencies and financial advisors. After this, Evans was sentenced to three months in prison in June of 2019. Now, where the appeal and Oklahoma State comes involved with this is that Oklahoma State argued that the school's case shouldn't have been classified at the same level as Evans and that the NCAA did not give enough weight to mitigating factors in judging the classification of this case. In response to that, the NCAA Appeals Committee wrote, quote, We do not find the appellant has demonstrated that the panel abused its discretion in the application and weighing of the aggravating and mitigating factors. Further, given that we have also determined that the panel did not abuse its discretion in the determination of the level of this case, the appealed penalties are affirmed, close quote. And I'm going to say, as a student of Oklahoma State, I am disappointed. That is the last thing I will say as a fan, as a student. I'm taking off that hat. I don't think the NCAA did anything wrong here. I really don't. Let's talk about how the NCAA works for a second. The big argument here that most people will give is that none of the players or coaches present day were on the team in 2016-2017. That's the best that's that's the argument that people can give. From the player front, that is correct. None of them were. From a coaching front, you're kind of right. The assistant director of player development in 2020, or in 2021, excuse me, is Keaton Page, former basketball player here. He was the assistant director of player development in 2016-2017. The current head coach 
of the Oklahoma State Cowboys is Mike Boynton Jr., who was the lead assistant coach under Brad Underwood in 2016 to 2017? Mike Boynton Jr. There are players, I mean, not players, coaches, who were on that team. Now, is there le- was their level of involvement quantitative to be implicated in something like this? Probably not. At least I have no reason to believe, particularly in the case of Mike Boynton Jr., that he is part of the guilty party here. So that's number one. Number two, and more importantly, the NCAA, even though it does do this, does not exist to punish players and coaches. That is not what the NCAA exists to do. The NCAA exists to govern schools. That's what it does. So to say that there are no that there were no players that actually came to Oklahoma State, there are no players that um, were on the team back then that are there now. What are players to the NCAA? They're just commodities. And then college basketball and college sports purists will try to hold to that they are amateurs and, you know, shouldn't have any sort of bargaining power. They have really no power up until very recently. So the NCAA is not going to take that into account. That You can just scratch that from any sort of dialogue, any sort of argument that you can make in favor of Oklahoma State here. Because the NCAA does not care about that. The NCAA lives to govern and punish individual institutions. And those are the schools. SMU got the death penalty that lasted for so long, and then after it expired, the effects of it were felt well into my teenage years. A penalty that was given, I believe, in the 80s. Baylor the same way after the whole Art Bryles thing. That destroyed Baylor football for quite a while. The NCAA does not care about successive generations of players at institutions. They're going to punish the school. Which is why which is however players are a commodity and they are a generator of revenue for the NCAA, which is where we get back to Oklahoma State, particularly Cade Cunningham. Now, here is why I am so level-headed and, quite frankly, unsurprised by this. I'd kind of just forgotten about it, really, because Oklahoma State was in the Big 12 tournament and appeared in the NCAA tournament a year ago, so I kind of forgot that this was happening, but it was. OSU was always going to serve one year of a postseason ban. They always were. Even when they appealed it last summer. And the reason why Cade Cunningham is so pertinent here is because the NCAA knew that Cade Cunningham was going to be on the Naismith, the Wooden, and every sort of award watch throughout the entire season. He was the presumptive number one pick in the NBA draft starting from before he ever played a game for the Oklahoma State Cowboys. And the NCAA, when Oklahoma State's filed that appeal, Now, the coronavirus and the pandemic and all the certain things in that realm that the NCAA was dealing with certainly helped the NCAA with this case. But I believe, and this is just a conspiracy, and it's the only time I will ever engage in conspiracy theories because I usually don't. I believe that it is likely possible 
that's the, that the NCAA allowed this appeal to draw on through the entirety of last season, all with the intention of rejecting the appeal come now. Because how much money do you think the NCAA would have lost on a regional level and a national, really, if Cade Cunningham was not allowed to participate in the Big 12 and the NCAA tournaments? It would have been a lot. And the NCAA was in no was in no place where they could sacrifice even more money than they were already losing because of a lack of fans in some in some places. So the NCAA knew what it was doing here. And I believe this was purposeful. And I believe that Oklahoma State was always going to serve one year. They, are, they, they were just going to do it. Now, the three years of probation and all of that, okay, that might be a little bit overkill. I'm not saying the NCAA was entirely correct with their opinion and with their, and with their execution of justice here. I don't think it w- I'm not going to say it was completely correct. I also do not have a definitive answer and a definitive argument to tell you that they were wrong. Because violations like this, particularly when you involve agents, and that's the key that everybody's missing here. This is still a recruiting violation of some sort. It's, well, it's not really a recruiting violation. It's part of it's corruption. It is definitely corruption because you are funneling players to agents. Now, is this as much corruption in 2021 as it was in 2016 and 2017? Maybe not. But there's bribery involved here, which is a crime. And there are steering players to agents, which is corruption, which is also a crime. And Lamont Evans was, you know, sent to prison for this. Okay. So because you can't, you know, you can't really punish Lamont Evans any any more than that. And you can't punish the individual players. Then you punish the school. Because these weren't just NCAA violations. There were crimes committed here. This was systemic throughout all of college basketball. And to people who want to use the argument, well, the NCAA didn't do anything to everybody. When has the NCAA ever been fair? It, the NCAA has never been fair, and it's not going to start being fair now. Now, do I think this is a case of like a power grab or something that the NCAA is doing to try to make a lasting impression on America as the NCAA... Um, influence and power is starting to die. No, I don't think that's this. But one key thing to note here is that Auburn and Arizona, who were two schools who were mainly involved in this, particularly Arizona, they also had assistant coaches plead guilty and also went to prison as well. They self-imposed postseason bans a year ago. If you remember why, if you if you w- were wondering why Auburn and Arizona never were in the po- in the postseason to begin with last year, it's because of that. They self-imposed these bans and got it over with. That's how they got ahead of this. And this is also part of how the NCAA governs itself and basically basically the unwritten constitution of the, of the NCAA, that it does allow schools to self-inflict penalties. And that is a key way to get ahead. Now, if you, do, now if you believe that you are devoid of culpability and are therefore undeserving of a certain penalty for a certain infraction— then you can appeal certain rulings, and that's fine. But you run the risk of it catching up to you down the line. 
what Arizona and Auburn smartly did is that they avoided harsher penalties, particularly in the case of Arizona, that they definitely deserved. They avoided those harsher penalties by just self-imposing postseason bans. Now, I don't know what the big difference between what happened with, with Oklahoma State and what happened with South Carolina happened. I can't tell you, I can't tell you that because Evans also committed violations there. But South Carolina actually avoided a postseason ban. So some, something might have been happening to determine there. And then, then there's your case of fairness there. Maybe if we dig more further into more information, we can find out why Oklahoma State was given a ban and USC was not. But, you know, getting butt hurt because the NCAA was not fair is quite naive because the NCAA is not run on fairness. That's just not how the, that the institution of the National Collegiate Athletic Association operates. But, but, I, but I can say this. The NCAA played this well in terms of how the NCAA operates. We all knew it. It would be idiotic for them to prevent Cade Cunningham from being in the Big 12 tournament and then being in the NCAA tournament on the biggest stage. They'd have lost a lot of money. On top of the money they were already losing due to the pandemic. But let's not kid ourselves here. Oklahoma State was always going to serve one year. And there's no flagrant abuse here with the NCAA. Of all the bad things we can say about the NCAA, this is not one of them. This was an investigation into criminal activity. And because the NCAA does not govern to punish individuals, they govern to punish institutions. This is what happens. So what always was going to happen, happened. And the Oklahoma State men's basketball team will miss the postseason this year. You don't have to be happy about it. I'm not happy about it. But, you know, one, you know, one of the things we have in our society, one of the issues we do, we have, is that we conflate happiness with what should happen and whether or not we like something versus whether or not it is legally plausible. And I was planning to talk about vaccine mandates today, but we're not going to do that. Might do that in another segment. But that's one place in American society that we get totally backwards as it pertains to conflating what we like and what is allowed to take place. And we'll end that episode on that. This has been The Gray Area, Apple Podcast, Spotify, coming to you from Oklahoma State University. My name is Grayson Singleton. We will see you next week. God bless. Keep cool. And as always, go Pokes and stay warm out there, guys. It's cold. (laughs) 